Welcome back to the Health Longevity Secret Show with Dr. Robert Lufkin. Today, we take a look at how dangerous sugar really is for our children and ourselves, and why more people aren't aware of the risks. Then we will learn powerful strategies to help decrease our dependence on it. Dr. Michael Goran is the best-selling co-author of Sugar Proof, the hidden dangers of sugar that are putting your child's health at risk and what you can do. He is a professor of pediatrics at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Dr. Goran serves as co-director of the USC Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute. Dr. Goran received his PhD from the University of Manchester uh, in 1986. Dr. Goran's research has focused on the causes and consequences of childhood obesity for over 30 years. In doing this, he has published over 350 professional peer-reviewed articles, wow, and re reviews and has raised over 50 million in funding for his work. Finally, before we begin, I would like to mention that this show is separate from my teaching and research roles at the medical school with which I am currently affiliated. It is, however, part of my continuing effort to bring quality, evidence-based information about health and longevity to the general public. Now, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Michael Goran. Dr. Michael Goran, welcome to our show. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much, Robert, for having me on. Looking forward to talking with you and uh, pleasure to be here. Great. Well, I, first of all, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the book that you and Emily wrote, Sugar Proof. Uh, we'll put that in the, uh, in the show this notes. Uh, there this, it is. We have book we right here. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes. And a lot of the things that we're talking about today are, are covered in this book. So if people want to learn more, uh, this, is, this is a great resource uh, about it. So maybe before we, we dive into the, the material, maybe we could start off by just telling us how you came to be so interested in this, this area. Yeah, sure. I So this has been my passion. This has been my career for 35 years. So I've, I've been doing research in childhood nutrition and health outcomes uh, for over 30 years. Um, and over the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years, a pretty clear message began to emerge from that research and a pretty, I feel, compelling story. And my, I wanted to, to, to get that story out. I wanted to make it available to the, to the broader public because I think there's some very useful information there. And as, as you probably know, and probably your users know, there's always a typically a 10, 15 year lag between research and, and practice. And I'm trying to accelerate that a little bit and get useful information out uh, to, the, to, to the broader public. So um, it's just, a, we'll talk about it, the story and the implications, but it's been my passion to do the research. We've learned so much, and I just wanted to get the message out. Uh, that that's great. Well, let's let's start off maybe on the basics to bring bring our audience up to speed. Um, maybe you could start off by telling us what exactly sugar is and and why why is it so dangerous? Yeah, so sugar has become so prolific in in our food supply, and we're 
you know, as, as a population, adults and children are consuming more sugar, different types of sugar. Uh, used to be sugar was, most sugar was predominantly sucrose, table sugar, white crystalline sugar, which is sucrose, which is a disaccharide of glucose connected to fructose. Uh, but now there's over 200 different names and varieties of sugars. Those are just the caloric sugars, and there's the non-caloric sugars, the sweeteners. Um, and consumption is prolific. Uh, over 70% of uh, processed manufactured foods have added sugars in there. And we've, we're learning that excess sugars is causing a lot of health problems, not just for children, but for adults. But children are more susceptible for reasons we'll probably talk about. Um, so sugar, broad topic. We have a whole chapter just defining sugar, and it's over 200 different names uh, that are currently used. And how has our thinking um, changed about uh, about the harm that sugar causes? Because uh, uh, I, I remember growing up, sugar was considered to be... Um, you know, maybe it, it wasn't good for your teeth, but otherwise it, you know, as long as you brush your teeth, you're fine and you might gain weight with it. But now we're hearing about heart disease, dementia, stroke, even some cancers. What's, what's changed? Yeah, I think what's changed is we've learned a lot about um, how sugar affects metabolism beyond the caloric effect beyond the direct effect on the teeth. So a lot about its metabolism, the byproducts of that metabolism and how it affects uh, the body. And, you know, for my own interest, how it affects the growing body, uh, how it affects development. Um, and because a lot of these things are slowly evolving, um, like heart disease, diabetes. And I think what's changed is what we've seen in the research in the last 10, 15, 20 years is the acceleration of some of those chronic diseases like heart disease, type two diabetes, the new emergence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, in adults and children, which can be related to diet and from our research and others to sugar in particular. Um, so those are some of the issues that have changed more sugar, different types of sugar, acceleration of these long-term chronic diseases, typically of adulthood that we're seeing emerge in childhood, but we're not just worried about emergence, it's the slow development of these diseases that begins in childhood. Ah, so so even though these, these chronic diseases are in later life, uh, children should still avoid sugar because of uh, the fact that they begin very early. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And um, it's not like we're saying that sugar should be completely avoided and, and eliminated from the diet because I think there's a place for it for sure. But I think it's become so prolific and so ubiquitous in the food supply um, beyond just um one or you know one or two special treats i think there's the issue of hidden sugars added to foods that you don't even know are there the emergence of or the replacement of water and milk is the beverage of choice for kids with juice and soda and energy drinks 
Um, so I think we need to really reset some of these things that have become almost daily staples for for kids, um, because the, the 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 effect of the consumption adds up over time. So we we need to kind of scale back and reset uh, some of those things. There have been uh, various recommendations from different organizations about uh, sort of maximum or recommended uh, amounts of sugar. So I, I think the American Heart Association says two to 18 grams for children. Uh, I'm sorry, for age uh, two to 18, the maximum number of grams is 25. And then for under age two, it is um, uh, zero. How do you feel about those numbers and what are your, what are your recommendations? Yeah, in, in the book, we, uh, we had recommend um, also zero added sugar for infants age zero to two years of age. Um, and that's actually part of the newest dietary guidelines that were just released in January of this year. Uh, so that's something we talked about, we've been talking about for a long time. Um, so I'm happy to see that emerge. Uh, I mean, there's a huge disconnect between that recommendation and uh, what's available in the food supply because 80% uh, of food products targeted for children, uh, including infants, have added sugar. So uh, we, we, we need to kind of balance what those recommendations are versus what is actually being produced and available to families everywhere. And then after two years of age, uh, we align pretty closely. My recommendations would be pretty close to the American Heart Association and the new dietary guidelines, which say less than 10% of calories. Um, and the World Health Organization would say even 5% of added calories. And for a child, that varies. I think the issue with the American Heart Association recommendations, which is good, but it's one number for kids and hard to compare a two-year-old with an 18-year-old um, because their energy needs vary. So in the book, we have a chart that translates that relative to age because of the changes in energy requirements with age. We, we always hear with macronutrients that um, there's a absolute minimum requirement of uh, fats and proteins as the two macronutrients. But for carbohydrates, uh, we, we often hear it said that there is no, no absolute minimum requirement for, for human life. Is that true? I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know of any, and I, I think it's because, you know, ultimately carbohydrates uh, are eventually break down to sugar themselves. So I, and I've heard it said, Oh, I've heard people say, oh, well, the body, you know, it needs, there's an essential need for sugar. And that's true because every cell in the body uses glucose, which is a sugar, for energy and for survival. So absolutely the body needs uh, sugar. So there, is, so there is definitely a minimal need, but the, the body can make that a number of different ways. And again, that's not to say our stance is that we're not saying that sugar should be completely eliminated. I just... I think that's completely unsustainable and unrealistic, um, for, especially for kids growing up today. But um, there, sh there, sh there should be a reduction, there should be a resetting or a maximum that we should be aiming for, not complete elimination. 
So, so if we take that, that 25 gram a number as a recommendation, putting that in perspective, um, uh, let's see with a, with a Coca-Cola, I think it's uh, 30 some grams in one, one standard size uh, Coke. Uh, so that would be uh, half a Coke a day or something to re reach the maximums. It's pretty easy to hit 25 grams, isn't it? With, with regular processed foods or uh, yeah. things that people would likely encounter in a store. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and even a glass of apple juice, for example, which, you know, has this healthy halo around it. Uh, but a glass of apple juice is quite similar in sugar content to, to a soda. And then there's hidden sugars in, you know, in bread, yogurts, uh, pasta sauces, those types of things where, you know, there's not really a need for sugar to be there, but that can add up. Um, breakfast cereal, you know, and most breakfasts for, for, for many families today would, would come pretty close or if not um, exceed that 25 grams. So, you know, in Sugar Proof, we talk about ways to rebalance that out to replace some of those added sugars to make sure there's minimal added sugars at breakfast and instead, you know, replace that with fiber and protein because it's also about mixing the macronutrients as well. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's uh, very important. Um, do you? But the bottom um, line is, you're right. There's a, there's a disconnect between huge disconnect between what is now recommended for health by major organizations, including the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and what's actually available, what's being fed to kids in schools, for example. Um, what is available by the food industry in, in, in the markets today, huge disconnect. Yes. I mean, I, when I was raised, uh, orange juice was a healthy drink and apple juice were healthy alternatives to other sweetened sugar drinks. But it, it sounds like what you're saying is as far as the, um, potential harm from sugar content, they're, they're not a very healthy alternative. Yeah, I mean, that's not things. to say that's not to say you can. You know, I'm not saying you can never have a glass of orange juice ever again because you know, fresh squeezed orange juice is you know, <laughs> delicious. But I think the issue is it's not shouldn't be a daily staple. Um, and you know, commercial apple apple juices is incredibly sweet. So you know, one simple solution to that is to dilute it down um, so you can still retain the flavor. And I, th I think what's happening in the food supply today is things have become so sweet because the food industry knows that sweetness sells, but sweetness just overwhelms all the other um, taste receptors. So apple juices, you know, stop tasting like apples. It just tastes of sweetness. So I think it's, we need to kind of re rebalance that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I one thing I encounter in, in talking to people, even people in the healthcare system, when if I raise the question about you know sugar being harmful, their response is, well, how can it be harmful if it's sold in all the stores as sugar cereals? You know, look at look at all the children's sections of the grocery store are full of brightly colored boxes with heavily sweetened sugars. 
And if this were harmful, you know, this wouldn't be available. Well, how do you, how do you, how can we respond to that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I, I think it's, again, there's a disconnect. I mean, the state of California has tried various times to put warning labels, for example, on soda, which would be the, you know, the main contributing culprit, uh, warning labels about its health effects. Uh, other other countries around the world have addressed this with uh, marketing or with uh, front of label uh, warnings or, or, or things like that. Um, I, obviously, that's going to be really difficult to change because it has such heavy weighted political issues and trying to make those changes are difficult. And I think that's, for me, very difficult to achieve. So that's why I'm all about education and information and trying to inform people everywhere so that the, so that uh, consumers can make the best choices for them and their families when, when, when making those um, decisions. So... Sure, it's changing. Yeah. It's changing. It's changing slowly, but there's still no law against a food company making a, a cereal that delivers 10, 15 grams of added sugars per per one bowl serving. Yeah, yeah. In your in your role as a co-director of the Diabetes and Obesity Center, there, um, we, I wonder what what your thoughts are on the increasing re- rates of diabetes and childhood diabetes and, and obesity. We're having what, what used to be called adult onset diabetes, type two diabetes now occurring in children. And various, various explanations have been put forward for this. What, what do you feel are the, are the explanations for these changes and, and uh, you know, what role does sugar play in that? Yeah, and I would add to that list uh, fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver, which wasn't even a disease 10 years ago, uh, and is now fairly pre- very prevalent. Um, I think it's an acceleration of the chronic disease aspect, like we talked about earlier, but also we shouldn't lose sight of the disparities here. So things like type 2 diabetes in childhood and fatty liver disease, huge disparity. We're seeing the highest levels there among uh, Latino and Black African-American populations and Native American populations, much, much higher levels. Um, and I, I think there's a lot to, we don't know about why that uh, predisposition is occurring and what makes those segments of the population uh, more vulnerable. Is it an economic issue? Is it some kind of uh, physiological difference? I mean, in let Latinos, we know there's actually a genetic predisposition to fatty liver disease uh, through a single um, nucleotide polymorphism. Um, That's that's very specific, but it's still a factor. So I don't know. I think we're still a lot to learn about those disparities because that's the real problem in terms of childhood disease emergence. So if you look at the numbers for type two diabetes in children or fatty liver disease in children, by far the numbers are highest in those groups. But what's happening generally across the board is an acceleration and an earlier onset. And I think it's because of 
early diet and even early environment uh, related to nutrition, which is seeding seeding these these outcomes by altering uh, physiology and, and and metabolism. Yeah, yeah. We just interviewed um, Tina Woods, uh, who's a, a policy expert with the British healthcare system, and they're they're doing an analysis of of liver disease and obesity and all. And, and she was she was saying how striking it was you could you could predict the diseases that people have by the zip codes they're from and you know and the socioeconomic uh, conditions that they lived in. But but yeah, this is. Um, this is a very important idea. And I wonder about the acceleration we're seeing. What does that reflect as far as changes in behavior of the people? I mean, uh, there have been soda drinks and, and dietary things for the last 30 or 40 years, but what you're saying, there's an acceleration in these. What, what, else, what is changing that might be responsible for these, these uh, increasing rates of fatty liver disease and obesity and type 2 diabetes that wasn't there 30 years ago? Yeah, I, th- I think um, for, for, for children, like, like I mentioned earlier, there's, there's been a shift. If you look at the data in, um, for example, beverage consumption, milk and water used to be the main beverage of choice. Um, not, not to say you and I never had a soda pop when we grew up, as I'm sure we did, but it's just um, that that's the main source of beverage now. So there's liquid sugar. Um is really is is problematic that there's so many different uh, sources of of liquid sugar uh, for children and it's rapid. Its effect when when it's consumed in liquid form, um, rapidly affecting metabolism, especially in the in, in the liver. Uh, so that's that's definitely one one thing that has changed, and then just different types of sugar. So. 30 years ago, the predominant type of sugar was uh, sucrose. Uh, but now, you know, in the 70s, we had the emergence of high fructose corn syrup, um, which most people know about and try to avoid. Well, not everybody, because it's still pretty ubiquitous in the food supply. But since then, over 200 different names, 200 different types of sugar. Uh, nowadays, we have a lot of fruit-based sugars, which have this great healthy-sounding halo around them, but uh, fruit-based sugars are very high in fructose. um, And we've kind of shifted the balance in sugar source towards fructose and fructose is more damaging, uh, especially during growth and development. So I think those are some of the changes that are, are different to 40 or 50 years ago. More sugar, different types of sugar, and then sweeteners, we can we can talk about as well, which you know have really also um, become prolific in the food supply and and very varied. Yeah. Before we uh, touch on sweeteners, one point about fructose: um, why is it um, more damaging than than glucose and the high fructose corn syrup? Also, yeah. So so glucose and fructose when, when when they join together that's that's sucrose that's ordinary table sugar uh, glucose and fructose are chemically identical c6 carbons 12 hydrogens and six oxygens um, 
But as soon as you consume them, they break apart and their metabolic fates are very different. Um, so glucose is the energy, like we mentioned, it's used for energy all over the body, all of the cells of your body are using glucose and its uptake is very carefully regulated. Uh, fructose, on the other hand, um, is not used directly for energy. Um, in fact, 90% of fructose is cleared by the liver. Um, and the liver's job, as you know, and but just to say the liver's job is to, to, to clear everything from the circulation that it doesn't want the body to get, like alcohol, toxins, drugs. And you can add to that list fructose because it extracts fructose out of the circulation. And what we've learned is that it converts it to fat. And that fat can get stuck in the liver, and that's what causes fatty liver disease if it builds up to a high enough level. Or that fructose uh, converted to fat <clears throat> gets repackaged into lipids, fats, uh, for circulation around the body. And that's where you get the link between sugar and cardiovascular disease. And then that metabolic pathway is very inflammatory, produces a lot of inflammatory molecules like uric acid, for example, and other pro-inflammatory molecules. So that when you list, when you invoke that pathway, it's inflammatory. So those are fundamental differences. Fructose is not uh, directly used for energy. Now, that's not to say if you're thinking that you shouldn't be eating fruit because fruit contains fructose, because all that all this is very dose dependent uh, and concentration dependent. So when you eat an apple which has fructose in it, it's trickling into the body very slowly, and the body was designed to tolerate that. And under those conditions of low dose fructose trickling in with the fiber, uh, the gut can actually convert some of that fructose into glucose, uh, and that can be used for energy. But that's overwhelmed very easily when you drink a glass of apple juice. The body wasn't wasn't designed uh, metabolically; it doesn't have the machinery to handle all that fructose all at once. So the only thing the body knows to do is to extract the fructose in the liver and convert it to fat. So. There's a disconnect between our metabolic machinery uh, and what we're feeding the metabolic machinery in today's food supply. Yeah, I, I um, enjoyed reading from, uh, I guess, uh, Rob Lustig and others who've made the point that, um, that before high fructose corn syrup was introduced, uh, uh, the, one of the leading causes of fatty liver disease was ethanol and ethanol is handled to some extent very similarly to fructose by the liver and results in fatty liver. And once high fructose corn syrup was introduced widely in the population, now the leading cause of fatty liver disease is, uh, is, uh, is arguably uh, the diet with uh, the high fructose. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, and as, as Rob Lustig says, uh, fructose is alcohol without the buzz. Yes. Uh, because because <laughs> the metabolic effects are the same. And it's not just high fructose corn syrup. You know, a lot of people now know the, that that um, is problematic, but uh, apple juice, 
actually has more fructose than high fructose corn syrup. Apple juice is about 70% fructose. Soda made with high fructose corn syrup is 60% fructose. So fruit juice should really be called high fructose fruit juice. Um, because we don't, we don't, we don't make, we don't make that connection because it sounds good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, with, with the, the concern you've raised about, about high sugar consumption, um, how, how do you recommend or what, what are, what are some of the approaches? And I know you, that basically half the book is devoted to this. So there's a lot of, lot of tools you give, but maybe you could share some of the, your approaches to uh, helping children um, avoid or decrease the amount of sugar they consume. I know we talked earlier, we both have two daughters, so we, <laughs> we directly face this in our lives. Yeah. And what we talk about is not just, I mean, it was, it was designed for, for children and families, but it's also relevant to adults too. Um, and so, you know, if we, if we look at the second part of the book, the first, the first chapter is how to talk to kids about this issue, how to get them on board, how to motivate them to, to, to realize and understand the importance of this. And obviously that's very age dependent. A lot of what we talk about is age dependent and, and, and and, and contextually different from family to family. So what works in your family with your kids might be very different uh, from my family. So uh, we understand there's different preferences and different contexts. Context. So I think understanding that and, and, and making adjustments for that is I think very important. It's not, it's not prescriptive. I'm not a big fan of prescriptive solutions because everybody's situation is very different so uh, I think we have to kind of figure out what the situation is and what the culprits are so that's one part of it breakfast is important um, because breakfast is important for kids um, becomes less so as they get older but for young kids breakfast is important and the start to the day is typically a high sugary meal so we have lots of tips and solutions for for restructuring re, um, breakfast meals. And that's not to say you have to like rip it up and start again. I think that a lot of the things we talk about are simple swaps and solutions and fixes like what you put on your toast or what to add to pancake batter to, to shift the balance to make it healthier, um, that kind of stuff. Hundreds of different tips and strategies. Uh, and then we, we have um, a seven-day plan and a 28-day plan. Uh, I said several times that we're not saying you should quit sugar forever, but the seven-day plan says, okay, what's, what would it look like if you quit sugar for seven days? And that those seven days are meant to be serve several functions. One is just so you understand and realize where the sources of sugar are every day, uh, hidden and otherwise. So whether that's in peanut butter or pasta sauce, so it, it walks you through planning for that and just getting, eliminating all sources of added sugars for one week and step-by-step -step planning for how to do that and get through it because it's a way to reset it's like a controlled alt delete. We're so wired up for sugar and sweetness 
And this is a way to kind of reboot the system. And what we found when working with families is the first day or two are tough because everybody wants their peanut butter or their jam on their toast and their apple juice or whatever. Um, but after a day or two, kids are resilient and they, 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 they get through it. And what parents report is they see their kids off of sugar and it's almost like a new kid in some cases um, and a resolution of a lot of issues and concerns. And, you know, that's not to say that that's like a magic fix, but it certainly resets the system and, and you, you end up making adjustments afterwards and you may shift back to, you know, you may kind of uh, coast back to where you were and then in three months or six months, you might have to do it again. Um, but that's one, that's one solution. And then we have recipes. I mean, again, we're not, all of our recipes say, how can you bake an everyday treat for a kid and not have added sugar. And again, that's not to say I don't have added sugar in my pantry. So we, we do use sugar in baking, but we challenged ourselves to say, how can you make a cookie? How can you make a cake? How can you make a blueberry muffin, an energy bar uh, without added sugar? So we came up with very creative ways. Uh, we just released a recipe, for example, on our website for Nutella. Everybody loves Nutella, but we wanted to say, well, can you make a Nutella without added sugar? Again, not to say you can never have Nutella again, but there's alternatives. And so we're trying to be creative in coming up with healthier alternatives. And kids actually like it. And they maybe they'll get involved with some of that process too, because getting kids involved in the kitchen is an important aspect of this too. Yes, I, I I enjoyed the Nutella recipe. I noticed it on your website. It looks it looks great, and that's a that's a great approach to um, uh, get engage people in, in a short term, even like you say a seven day plan to decrease the amount of sugar and then lower your body's uh, set points for sugar, so you 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 don't crave it so much and just and just see the difference. That that's fascinating. What about um, sugar substitutes as an alternative there are many many different on the mark on the market what are the good choices what are which ones should we avoid i think avoid all of them uh, i don't think there's a good one right now um and i would not lean on them as an alternative i think that's a mistake i think the, the food industry is doing that the food industry uh, gets rewarded by they, they want they, they've been mandated to reduce sugar so all they're doing is reducing sugar and replacing it with, with, with sweeteners, then we don't even know what they're doing in the body. They've passed toxicity tests. They've become generally recognized as safe, but you know, they, there's no long-term studies on their effects, especially on growing kids, number one. Um, num number two, they don't solve the craving for sweetness that we're trying to address. Um, and number three, they kind of trick the body. I mean, they're designed to, to deliver sweetness without the calories, which is what they do. Uh, but there's these receptors for sweetness are still turned on. And when this, the sweet taste receptor gets turned on, the body thinks there's sugar coming in. So what's the body going to do if it knows sugar's coming in? 
is it's going to take sugar out of the blood. Blood glucose is going to fall because the body thinks there's an excess, but there's not. So then what happens when blood glucose falls, you get cranky and hungry and, and start seeking out more food. Uh, so in fact, studies show that habitual consumption of sweeteners is related to more calorie consumption, not less. At the point of consumption, that one cookie, yes, it has less calories, but you might end up eating three of those cookies instead of one or two. And then you might, because your body's still craving sugar, eat more later in the day. And then the fourth thing is because calories are not absorbed, where do they go? They're fermenting in the gut. So basically the gut bacteria end up metabolizing these sweeteners so it affects the gut microbiome and gut health. And then number five, I just don't think they taste very good. So if I'm going to make cookies or a cake, um, I'm not going to replace sugar with stevia or monk fruit because then it's not going to taste very good. I think the most smarter solution is just to use less sugar. So if the recipe calls for a cup of sugar, you could add half a cup or even 30% less. And I'll guarantee you those cookies will taste just as good, if not better. It's certainly got, it's not going to affect the texture. Um, and probably the, the taste will be just as good, if not better. So I think the much smarter solution is just to use less sugar, uh, not replace it with some sweetener. We don't know how it's affecting the body and it may cause you to eat more. Yeah, so so a lot of the um, a lot of the the harm from sugar is not only from the sugar itself, but from the downstream metabolic effects that sugar cause with insulin and other factors. And and what you're saying is a lot of these these artificial sweeteners, although they're not sugar themselves, they can trigger some of the metabolic effects downstream that sugar would with insulin and and other things. Aside from and, and also the unknown the unknown risk of their uh, we we've seen that they're they're not toxic but their long term safety effects and their effects on the gut uh, yeah yeah they, they may absolutely they, you know they they've passed toxicity tests that doesn't mean to say they're not causing other effects in the body um, so yeah it's all about the downstream metabolism I think um, we tend to forget about that when, when mm -hmm. we're eating something. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, thinking just about uh, your work in obesity and, and diabetes and all, uh, Gary Taubes has famously, uh, you know, made the argument that calories in don't equal calories out and all that. What What's your thinking on is is a, a is it calories in equals calories out anymore, or is that is that changing? It's changing. I think um, the glucose versus fructose comparison is a perfect um, example of why it's not just about the calories. So glucose and fructose both yield four calories per gram. That's the, that's the caloric equivalent. Uh, both molecules are chemically identical. They have a different shape. One's a hexagon, one's a pentagon. That turns out to be pretty important. Um, and once consumed uh, metabolically, they're just very different. So it's all about how these 
identical chemicals are metabolized very differently um, and what they trigger, as you say, downstream turns out to be very important. So there's a perfect example of a calorie of glucose versus a calorie of fructose having very, very different effects uh, on the body. Yeah. And one other thing uh, people are, are, we're hearing a lot about is macronutrient sequencing in diets that, uh, that it, it's not just what you eat, but it's the order that you eat them so that a, a sugary drink followed by fat and protein is more potentially harmful metabolically than a meal with fat and protein at front and then the sugar at the end for the way it's handled in the gut and, and other factors. Do you, do you agree with that also? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I mean, I've personally tested it. So um, I think these things are probably going to be pretty uniquely personal as well. And we're not, you know, we're still starting to get a handle on that, but for sure um, combination is important as well as sequencing. So for example, for example, some of our recipes will use dates as a sweetener um, in our energy bars. And people say, why are you using dates? It has such a glycemic index. Uh, and that's true. If you were to eat like, you know, a handful of dates, it will shoot your glucose way up. But if you're just putting dates into a mixture with, with fiber and protein and other macronutrients, the combination will not spike your sugar as much. And I've done those comparisons because I've worn a glucose monitor several times and kind of monitored, like if I have a piece of jam, piece of uh, toast, plain toast, it will increase my blood sugar. But if I put eggs on it or um, some other source of protein or fiber, it can, it can dampen that glucose spike. So I think ultimately it's all about finding out what kind of make, helps keep your blood glucose levels as stable as possible during the day. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe in the last few moments, we could talk about um, knowing what you know, uh, as an expert in this field, uh, how has this knowledge influenced the personal choices that you make in your life uh, about uh, diet or even exercise and, and lifestyle? Yeah, I've, I've, I've been reflecting on this a lot recently, actually. So I mean, what, what I've came to the conclusion was, so for me, I track a lot of stuff over time. So I, I have a digital scale that connects to an app. So I can, I can look at my weight records over the last 10 years. I think, you know, at our age, I think it's important to kind of monitor those month to month and year to year changes because things kind of creep up on you. Um, so it's important to, to, to spot those early. Um, I, I don't follow a set prescriptive diet because I, I like the flexibility. I love cooking. I love eating. I love to kind of eat in season and I have a family. So we like to decide together what to eat. So, um, so we, we, we tend to follow more of a guideline approach, which I, I like cause it's more flexible and not so prescriptive. Um, so some of our guys, I mean, I eat minim we, minimal processed foods, um, lots of fruits and vegetables. Um, we do a lot of home cooking, local shopping and that kind of stuff. So we, we, we just, I believe more in kind of getting good quality in ingredients. Um, I don't drink alcohol. I haven't for the last 10 years because I realized I didn't like the way it made me feel. 
and I've never really liked coffee. Um, uh, so my, my, I drink a lot of green tea. That's kind of my beverage of choice. Uh, I, I, I like the taste and that, that's, that's what I like. Um, exercise wise, about 10 years ago, I rediscovered my childhood love of tennis and I love to play tennis. So I, I, I don't get to play enough, but once or twice a week, that's kind of my go-to. And again, I don't, I don't have a set routine. Um, I'd like to walk and run once in a while, but I like the flexibility more than anything. So I don't, I don't like to kind of be bogged down, although planning helps. So it helps me to know what days work well for me. So those are, those are some of the things I use to, to just, you know, being flexible, not being bogged down by a prescription. Oh, and the other, the other thing I started to do personally was um, I'll do, I, do intermittent fasting maybe four or five days a week now um, where I'll basically just combine breakfast and lunch into one meal, like around 11 or 12. So I usually fast between dinner and late morning or lunchtime. So I, that I believe in, I think the, the research on that's pretty strong um, and it, it works for me because I feel more energetic during the day. And also having worn a glucose monitor several times, I know that it's very helpful to stabilize my blood glucose. I'm actually right on the verge. Surprisingly, my HbA1c is like 5.7, which is the, at the lowest point of diagnosis of prediabetes, right? So that, that concerned me. That was about four or five years ago. Um, although my blood glucose is fluctuates between, in the in the 90s when i wore the glucose monitor my glucose was with with a normal range like 98 percent of the time mm. <clears throat> and my hba1c has stayed at 5.7 uh so i feel pretty good about that i've, I've, I've I think have you checked I've your fast have you checked your fasting insulin you know i think that no i th this is i think um that should be a clinical, that should be a standard clinical test, shouldn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, one, one thing that uh, people are discovering now is that uh, glucose, uh, rising glucose and, you know, HA1C uh, are relatively late findings in diabetes. It's at the point where your pancreas, where our pancreas is beginning to fail and that yeah. insulin, insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia elevation of the insulin can precede uh, clinical diagnosis of type two diabetes by 10 years or so. And that uh, tracking uh, ele elevation in insulin can help people uh, begin to see the course they're on. So we, I, we, we recommend a lot of people are finding value in, in checking their fasting insulin levels. Although, as you say, it's still, it's still a weird test that, that most physicians don't order for their patients unless they specifically uh, request it, but hopefully that's changing. Yeah, I'm, I think that's a good point. Um, I've never actually looked at my fasting insulin. I mean, we, from a research perspective, we, it's like top of our list. Like, <laughs> it's like, if you have, like people ask me if, I'm, if they're doing a study, what should I measure? I'll say fasting insulin, but you know, clinically that's not how we're thinking. Um, so I think that needs to change. I think part of the problem there is that the assay is so difficult, isn't it? I mean, 
and so variable. Um, so it would help if we had a better standard, even just a standard lab assay, let alone a fast measure that we could do at home, uh, which would be even better. So that's that that's definitely missing. Yeah, that's, that's really a good point. Um, what's the best way for people to to follow you and find out about your work uh, in addition in addition to your book? Uh, what is the website uh, they should go to? Yeah, the website is sugarproofkids.com. And then on social media, Instagram and Facebook, it's at sugarproofkids. So through those portals, you can follow us. You can email me directly through any of those, and I'll get those emails. And I'm happy to hear from you. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Michael. I guess we can cross off Coca-Cola as being a sponsor for this uh, for this program. But uh, but that's uh, they were never really in the running anyway. But yes, I, thanks. Thanks for so much for taking the time to be with us, be with us today and share share your knowledge about this very important topic. Thanks, Robert. Thank you for, for talking about it and for getting people more informed about some of these issues. So thank you so much for what you're doing. No, this is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking of it because of something you've seen here. If you find this to be of value of you, please hit that like button and subscribe to support the work we do on this channel. Also, we take your suggestions and advice very seriously. Please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching and we'll hope to see you next time!